0: Powerful words. May they be an encouragement to you this morning. They are to me, uh, especially as I think, um, as we uh, begin our message this morning on Luke chapter 8, 22 through 39, um, I think that God walked with me a lot when I was a kid. Um, Because there are times when I certainly should have been dead. Um, And some of those things, actually, that should have killed me involved the Rideau Canal. There's a picture up here. There it is. Um, This is actually a canal that runs through the small town that I grew up in in eastern Ontario. The Rideau Canal was built, actually, for the War of 1812, by the way, when Canada beat the U.S. Just let's be clear about that. Okay? Okay. In the War of 1812, there was an alternative means that they needed to transport goods from the Ottawa River down to the Great Lakes. And in order to do that, they built a canal, the Rideau Canal, that goes through about 100 miles of stuff, um, different lakes and and places where they had to dig stuff out before it ultimately gets to the Great Lakes. And Smith's Falls, the small town that I lived in, um, was um, on that route. And it's a canal that um, ended up, it was the river through town that kids swam in. And there was actually this place that they sort of set aside a, a swimming area, you know, with those buoy lines so you knew where you could go and where you couldn't go. Several years ago, um, actually quite a while ago, Kristen and I went there and she was astounded that this was a swimming area. She said, "When? why did they teach you to swim in rapids? Because the current was so strong through this area. Just the way that it was. Um, this is all we had. So we swam there and I probably should have been carried away. Um, you see there, there are are locks. And those locks are there to transport boats up and down the canal. There's actually a couple railroad bridges in town that go not only above the river, but also above the locks. So they're 80 or 90 feet in the air above everything. And as a child, my brother and I and some of our neighborhood cohorts would jump from those bridges into the water, 80 or 90 feet. And we do it all the time. Like It would happen every summer. And there were police officers who, of course, wanted to introduce themselves to us while we were doing that. And um, what we found out is that they could only come from one side of the bridge. So whatever side of the bridge that they would come on, we'd go to the other side, and then they couldn't catch us. And then they'd come to the other side, and we'd go out the other way. That's, you know, back in my days before Jesus. So praise God that he has done his work in my life. But this river was central to my world. In fact, there we instead of saying you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, you grew up on the wrong side of the river. And I grew up on the wrong side of the river of the Rideau Canal. And to this day, when I hear anything about the Rideau Canal, it has sort of a warm space in my life. It's meaningful. Some of you have that same thing. And maybe that for you is not a, a canal like this. Maybe it's a creek somewhere where you grew up. Maybe it's a local swimming hole. I know there's like an irrigation thing over here that's a swimming area for back in the day from someone when you were kids. Maybe for you it's Huntington Beach and going to the Pacific Ocean. This beautiful spot that you enjoyed, have enjoyed for a long time. And some things have happened there that have shaped and formed you in some different ways. This morning, we want to explore this one particular body of water that shapes and forms God's Word, and especially this morning, we want to think about how it shapes and forms the ministry of God through Jesus Christ, the Sea of Galilee, and so I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We're going to read there 22 through 39, although we're just going to concentrate more so on about the first four or five verses, and before we do that and jump into God's Word, let's pray for His blessing and presence on our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We are reminded that it has power, power to transform, power to remind, power to encourage, power to challenge, power even to admonish and correct. I pray, Lord, that in Jesus' name in our time here that I might disappear, that you might speak your words here to the hearts and minds of the people of this community, that, Lord, we might hear what it is that we need to hear from you. That you might move in us. That you might challenge us to consider how it is that we engage with our world around us and how it is that we engage with you. How we consider that you have never left us nor forsaken us. We've never walked alone. And, Lord, in that, then, how we walk in the world around us in a way in which we are a testimony To the work in the presence of Jesus Christ. Lord, that is work that you and you alone can do. We ask that you do it in us today. In Christ we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. It says this there. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. Now, how many of you have ever been to the Sea of Galilee? Some of you I know who have. Were any of you, Jim, were you surprised by how small it is? It's striking when you go to the Sea of Galilee to realize just how small it is. So I want you to step outside this building in your mind for a moment. Please don't do that now. That would be disruptive. But step outside this building for now, and I want you to look at the landscape of this area of Redlands and Highland and San Bernardino that many of you know so very well. You look across the valley over here, and you see mountains on the other side where you would head up to places like Lake Arrowhead and Crestline. You look over in that direction over there, And if you could look far enough, you'd hit places like Colton, just beyond Loma Linda, and then eventually places like like Rialto and Fontana. That's a distance really from this side of the mountains to that side of give or take 10 miles. That's how wide the Sea of Galilee is at its widest point. So if you're thinking like a Mediterranean Sea type of thing, you don't have the right image. This is a much smaller space in sort of uh, the, the, the geography of Israel. Now, it is long. It is long, and by long I mean like 30, 40 miles from end to end. Capernaum would be the most northern end of the Sea of Galilee if you traveled then about 40 or 50 miles south. So figure from about here to Ontario Airport. That's about the distance that we're talking about. So if you go that distance that way and from mountain to mountain, that's the Sea of Galilee. And as Christ is doing his ministry, you're going to see it especially in Luke's Gospels. It will say over and over again, and they got, over, they got into the boat and they crossed over to the other side. Whenever you hear that in the text, you should always hear Christ is going to a different group of people. Now here, he's starting in Capernaum, and he's moving over to the other side. It's actually not the other side. He's actually heading a little bit south and a little bit east, and he's heading into what is called the Decapolis. You hear that word Decapolis? You should think in terms of its ethnic origins, what would it be? It would be Greek, Decapolis. It's a Greek word, right? It actually means 10 cities, 10 towns. And Christ is journeying to the Decapolis, which is predominantly Greek. But every time he crosses over, there's a different group of people. Over in Jericho, there's the people called the Herodians. Those are people who align themselves with Herod, Herodians, obviously enough. They are, in a sense, cultural Jews. Jews who are not heavy duty into sort of the belief practice of Judaism as they are into the power and the politics of Judaism. These are really the power players in sort of the temple courts, Sadducees, Pharisees, all that other sort of stuff. They like the power of Judaism. Jesus is here in Nazareth, in the Galilee. The Galilee is actually a group of people who are not that political Jews, but believing Jews. Christ is doing his ministry in the midst of people who are trying to live Judaism out. These are the poor folks, Capernaum, Nazareth, some of these small towns there are all the poor folks who have nothing else, in a sense, except their faith and living that out faithfully. Now, between where Jesus is in Capernaum and over in um, the Decapolis, there's this other little group of people, and at this time, they're fairly small. Eventually, they get much larger, and they are the, um, excuse me, uh, trying to remember the name here. They are the, ah, Zealots. Gamla is a town over here. It's actually up in the hills, a little way off the sea. Zealots. What would you think um, these people would be like? Would they be a passionate people? Zealots, right? Zealots. What are they zealous about? Here's what they're zealous about. They are zealous about the Messiah coming again. And because the Messiah is coming again, they want to get everything right. They want to be obedient to who God is and that God would then raise up the new Israel. They're always looking for the right Messiah. So these are passionate believers. Here are the poor believers in Nazareth, Galilee. Over there in Jericho are the Herodians and over there is the Decapolis, those are the Greeks. So every time that Jesus is crossing the sea from one place to another, in essence, what he is doing is he is living into a diverse, radically different ethnic culture every time he goes over. So when he goes into the boat this time, he's preparing himself for a new group of people, leaving Capernaum, the Galilee, and going to the Decapolis. Verse 23 and 24, the first part of 24. As they sailed, he fell asleep. Squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Now, we see this and my guess is that many times when you've heard these sermons about this particular passage of scripture, Jesus calming the storm, you've heard it from the perspective of what the disciples did and what the disciples thought and what Jesus did. And that's all well and good. And we'll spend a moment or two with that. But I want to ask this question. As the text says, where did the squall hit? Where did it hit? It hit The sea, right? Okay, and when did it hit the sea? Go to the beginning of the passage. You're going to find it says, on that day. It hit the whole sea during the day. All we hear about in this particular text is this boat with the disciples and Jesus in it. But were they the only people on the sea? They weren't. This is daytime, and this is something a squall. If you know anything about squalls, if you're a sailor of any sort, you know they're quick, unpredictable storms that drop in a moment, come for a time, are very powerful, and then leave very quickly. You cannot anticipate them. You can't do, oh, there's going to be a squall today. It doesn't work like that. These things, they just come. So, since the Sea of Galilee is a working body of water, people who are fishing, people who are traveling, like Jesus, from one side to the other, traders, traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, people who are selling goods, that sort of thing, all this sort of stuff is going on on the sea. So, there's probably other folks on the water, but we never hear anything about them. All we know is that a storm has come and the disciples are scared out of their wits. They're terrified. But I want us to think here that, be reminded, the storm comes to everyone. The storm comes to those who are in the boat with Jesus. But the storm also comes to those who are not with Jesus, but they're still in the water. The storm comes to those who are on the shoreline, maybe casting nets from the shoreline. The storm comes to even those who live upon the shore. The storm comes for everyone. And here's Jesus in the boat with the disciples, and even as he does this ministry to them, he's teaching something about how they interact with this diverse world around them. Remember, Herodians, believing Jews, zealous Jews, Greeks. He's teaching them that, hey, folks, you're in the boat in the storm with me, but they're in the storm too, and they don't got me. I was reading this week for a number of reasons about a group of people who wanted to figure out how to navigate the storm. We call them in the tradition of the church the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers are the original monks. You all know what a monk is? A monk is a person who really um, separates themselves from culture and the world, and they live somewhere specifically to focus on God's word, God's teaching. And they have three specific focuses if they're living into the tradition of the monastery that has been around for almost 2,000 years. The first monastics of the Desert Fathers were about the year two or 300, give or take. But they have these three principles and precepts. The first one is solitude. You go into places where you are alone. The second is this silence. You go into a place you do not speak so that you may experience God's presence. And the third thing is prayer. And what the Desert Fathers in the tradition of the church have taught us about prayer is that prayer doesn't have to be complicated or flowery. How many of you have been in the church life, you know, for more than 40 years? You remember the long flowery prayers? Do you remember those, the 20-minute deals that went on? And you heard theological terms during those prayers that were, like, really confusing? Oh, dear Jesus, um... uh, you know, Robert, who is living in sin, Lord, may you sanctify him out of his justification that he is known through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, you know, those little sorts of prayers, okay, these desert fathers say, friends, that's not the way it is, in fact, They say, Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. How can you pray without ceasing if you're going to have all this complicated theology and other stuff about your prayers? In fact, this is a tenet of the Desert Fathers, and I am learning this, and I encourage you to learn it as well. Simple, short prayers that speak God's Word. Why am I bringing that up? Because I'm going to tell you a prayer that has been incredibly powerful in my life. Master. Master. I am going to drown. Master. Master. I'm going to drown. The disciples here are not just making a request of Jesus. For us to hear this this morning as a prayer for the storm. And there are many others in the text that are short, powerful words of God. They are not human words wrought and filled with theological complexities. They speak the truth powerfully to us. Master, master, I am going to drown. One of the things that the fathers would do is pick a passage of scripture like this and say that passage over and over and over again throughout the day, almost like a breath. Another one that has been powerful to me in my life has been this, as I breathe in, Not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. Not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. For us then to live into the power of daily and continuous prayer when the storms come like the disciples were doing without even knowing it empowers us with the hope of God's word because we see what happens here, don't we? We see what occurs in this story when the cry of the prayer is brought before the creator of the universe. Christ is present. And he saves. He redeems a broken and lost situation in a powerful, powerful way. Verses 24b and 25a. It says this there. He got up. And rebuke the wind and the raging waters, the storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith, he asked the disciples. Those are powerful, powerful things that Christ did. Not just, of course, his calming of the wind and the waves, but then also his question of the disciples. He is confronting them with the reality that the storm is here, but so is he. And if we remember what we talked about earlier, that the storm is present over all the waters and over the whole sea, and it is sudden and imperils many, not just the boat of the disciples, in some way for us to hear Christ's question of the disciples, where is your faith in this way? No one else in this storm has me with them. If you don't trust me in it, what hope is there for them? Friends, the world around us goes through it, goes through the tough stuff, goes through the hard conversations, the trying times, the seasons of depression, depression, the seasons of, of the lack of, of, of enough, enough money, enough relationship, enough of whatever. The world goes through addictions and they go through brokenness. And they're doing it the same way. I could tell you the stories. I know so many of your stories of going through those times. But we have the difference. Christ is in the boat. The one who creates the universe is with us. And if we have that, and the world doesn't, don't you think that we might have something to teach them? Isn't it perhaps that God gives us sometimes the storms of life for us to then be a powerful testimony in no other way to a world experiencing the storms that they do? Of who Christ really is. Christ's question, where is your faith, is a question for us today. Because I know some of you are going through it. One of the things that I try to do when I preach, friends, is I try not to stop my eyes too long, because when I do, some of you think that I'm preaching directly at you, and that I thought about you when I was writing the sermon, and it freaks you out a little bit. But it is hard sometimes when I preach to look around, because when I look around, I always, when I see a face, I see a story, and I see the storms, I see the stuff. I see a mom terrified because of two learner's permits that happened this week. (laughs) I see a woman missing her husband still. Really missing her husband. I see people in this room who've been devastated by news this week. that Have absolutely rocked their world. I see folks who have gone through experiences over the last five years asking the question, when in the world is this thing going to end? I see people in here who have told me of their loneliness because their children have walked out of their life in some way, shape, or form. I see those things, and for us then to know, as we go through this, friends, hear me here. We have Christ in our boat and no matter what your story is, it is a testimony to the world around you who knows perhaps some of the same pain that you do, but has no idea how to navigate it, no idea what to do next. Friends, where is your faith? Where is your faith? The passage continues. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? Commands even the winds and the water, and they obey them. Now, I'm not going to spend time with the entire text of the healing of the demon possessed man. I don't want to put that, um, I, I don't want to include that this morning, except to say this Christ says to the disciples, I am present with you in your storm. And then he shows them how to do it. He shows them what God's presence is when those who are going through challenging and hard times and how then to be that testimony of God's love and God's power and God's grace in someone who's walking through the hard stuff. It's a demon-possessed man. And this demon-possessed man has been possessed by years by something that hurt him deeply, hurt relationships deeply, was violent, created um, an ostracism and loneliness for him in his community. And Christ comes into that and does something spectacular. For us to hear this morning that Christ gave that peace and that command to the disciples. He gave them the calming of the storm and then he said, where is your faith? And then he showed them how to be the calming of the storm to a person who desperately needed it for us to learn from that. So what do we learn? Well, for that, I'm going to step out of the text for a moment to something that just blew me out of the water this week. I was given a book a couple of years ago. It was a book, it's a book called, what is it here? Love Kindness by Barry H. Corey. And you can, you can jump ahead to that last part there. Um, Barry H. Corey, for those of you who don't know, he is, I think he's the, still the president at Biola University. It's a Christian college here in Southern California. If you have not picked up this book, I would encourage you. It is messing with my world in beautiful ways. Marlene Heckman gave it to me. It means the world to me that I have it and I'm grateful for it. It has spoken to her life. I encourage you to pick it up and maybe it speaks to you. This book really speaks to what Jesus did with the demon possessed man. He went into a hard space, a place where he could invoke all the religious teachings of Judaism. He could invoke all this different stuff that was accessible to him through his power. But you know what he did? He just approached him and he touched him. He touched him figuratively and he touched him f- physically. He made himself, hear me here, this is absolutely key, receivable, to someone who is unclean and is in the storm and is hard to approach. Because if we're gonna be a testimony to who Jesus is and who Christ is to us as he's in the boat with us in our storm, then we need to figure out how to do that in a way to others around us and being receivable, meaning simply this we don't come with judgment. We don't come immediately with strong words or we don't come Bible-thumping someone over the head using the Bible as a two-by-four to knock some sense into them. We come and we touch them with who we are. Come and touch them with our heart. But, you would say, does that mean I need to love everyone? Yeah, we need to love everyone. That's a command of scripture. But how we love is important. Barry Covey goes on to say this. He says, as we make ourselves receivable, remember, the world is a diverse world. All the different people groups that we deal with, as you deal with them in love, make yourself receivable. Keep this in mind. That you engage with the world around you with a solid core you know who you are. You know what you believe. You know the truths of Scripture. You do not vary from God's truth in your life. You don't become somebody who says, everything's okay, do whatever it is that you want. Christ will still love you. Because friends, if that's something that we do, then we're not living into the truth of the Scriptures. We need to have that solid core that says, As we engage with the world around us, we believe what we believe. As we go into the Decapolis, as we go to the Herodians, as we go to the Zealots, as we live in our religious world, as we deal with the secularists, as we deal with the Republicans or the Democrats, as we think about those who are pro-life and those who are pro-abortion, as we think about those who who live into the alternative lifestyles of this world, we live into those relationships with a solid, non-negotiable, core of the truth that we are sinners, Christ is not. His grace is sufficient, and now he calls me in light of his word to live in obedience to him. Solid core. But then he calls us to something else. Barry Corey does. That's why this book is so beautiful. Soft edges. Soft edges. Edges that can engage with somebody without a punch. Edges that can engage with the world around us without a cut. That we are incredibly cautious in our words that we do not speak words of judgment. You know who speaks words of judgment? Really foolish people oftentimes. But God does. God can take care of that. In his time, if there's words of judgment that need to be spoken... I like this for that more than I like this. So I live into the soft edges of love and grace and forgiveness and peacefulness and caring, but I don't change what's in here. The core is solid. I know who Christ has called me to be, and I will then live into that as I engage in this diverse sea around me. Christ teaches us three things from this text. The first is this. He engaged with a diverse world, but he never changed. The second is this. The sea is a place of storms. Christ could engage with them because they needed his help. Storms are a beautiful place for us to touch the world around us with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. In case you've never heard me say it, the most powerful moments that I've had as a pastor in almost 20 years of ministry have been so often around funerals, a place of a storm, a place of pain. Finally, Christ was open to his Father's call to take the good news to other places. Friends, if you can't carry a solid core with soft edges into those dark and challenging places around you, who will? Culture? Politics? Money? Family? We all know how dysfunctional our families are. What's going to do it? It's going to be the body of Christ. With Christ in the boat. Saying, go where I call you. Speak as I speak. Live as I live. Know who you are in me. But go across the water. Would you pray with me? Father, In Jesus' name, I pray that as we approach our own storms, that we can speak those words of prayer. Master, Master, we're going to drown. That we in trust, in faith, can believe that you are in the boat with us. And as we also then engage with a diverse world around us that experiences the storms as well. That because we know you are in the boat with us, that we can then be a testimony to the world with your truth. That truth that is solid in the core of us. We know who you are and we will live out the truth of you, who you are through your word, through obedience to you. But we will do so in a way, Lord, in which the world experiences our kindness, our softness, our love, our grace. And Lord, if there is to be a judge, Lord, may we release that to you. If there is to be condemnation, Lord, it is Christ who condemns, not us. Lord, may we then live into that in a way which the testimony is strong and we can see you at work through us in the storms around us and we can be reminded you are the one who with a word can calm the wind and the waves and bring us and bring the world peace.